From Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Being greatly disturbed, they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by, your build, by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. In addition to our weekly celebration of the Lord's Day, Our church has enjoyed many other special days over the past 20 plus years. And today is one of those special days because we are ordaining and installing a new ruling elder in our church. Roy Bradley has proved himself among us and today he will be formally set apart for the work of being an overseer or an elder in this congregation. In a few minutes, The session will charge this man, lay hands on him, and ordain him, thus setting him apart for special service in the church of Jesus Christ. This is an honor to him and a blessing to all of us. Roy is a gift to us from Jesus Christ. Ultimately, his desire uh, is to spend his labors as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a shepherd of his sheep. As I considered a sermon for this special occasion, the first thing I did was turn to our next text in the book of Acts as we've been working through the book of Acts. And I do think this particular text, which was next up, has some things to say to a man in Roy's position as well as lessons for all of us. And so, Roy, I will take some liberties this morning and... um, make some special application for you and exhortations as you are about to step into this work of ministry among us. You are about to become a public man, and as such, great responsibilities are about to become yours. As we ended chapter 3, we now turn to chapter 4, where we found Peter was preaching in the temple after the healing of the lame man. And uh, it was an impromptu speech that he was giving uh, in response to a crowd that had spontaneously gathered after they witnessed the healing of this man who had been 
uh, lame from birth, had been brought daily and laid at the beautiful gate of the temple, and everyone knew who he was. He was a well-known beggar. People were familiar with him. And so now to see him walking and leaping and praising God, suddenly, dramatically, a big crowd has now gathered. Peter, uh, there in Solomon's porch, begins to speak to them. He had everyone's attention. And because he had everyone's attention, he took the occasion to point everyone, not to himself, or not even to the man who had been healed, but rather to Jesus Christ, who was the source uh, and, the, um, and the, uh, the power source, if you will, for the demonstration of what God had done here. Both the healing and especially the sermon led many to believe, but it also grabbed the attention of the leaders of the Sanhedrin and not in a good way. When we're busy doing the Lord's work, there will be a full range of, of reactions and responses that will show up. The world was no less political then than it is now. So the message about Jesus being the long-expected Messiah meant big trouble from the start. Now, we read in verse 1, As they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, seized them. In other words, Peter's sermon was abruptly interrupted. Imagine a police force coming, busting into the back doors here during the sermon and coming up here and grabbing me and arresting me in front of you. That's the picture that we have here, except the crowd is much bigger. And so that's, uh, that's what's being described here. They weren't necessarily, though, upset about the healing of the lame man, but they were, the text says, greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It's offensive because it challenges the power structures of the world. The world does not have any trouble with a Jesus who is meek and mild. They have, a, they, uh, have no trouble with a private Jesus. They have no trouble with a Jesus that's confined to your heart. But Roy, you are called to reclaim and defend a public Jesus that makes both personal and public demands. Jesus had already spoken, and Luke records this in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the Apostle Paul would later declare in Romans 1, as he marched into Rome, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A resurrected Jesus was offensive to the Romans. It was offensive to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And one party of the Sanhedrin in particular, that being the Sadducees, they were the ruling class. They were the aristocrats, wealthy. Uh, they had a, had a political alliance with the Roman government. 
And so now with thousands of people suddenly turning to Jesus, even in the temple itself, they suddenly felt an existential threat to their own powers. In other words, their own existence, their, their positions were being threatened. If resurrection, if the resurrection is true, then it means that there is a king who is the king over the kings and that they are accountable to him. Commentator John Stott summarizes this way. He said, theologically, the Sadducees believed that the Messianic age had begun in the Maccabean period, so they were not looking for a Messiah. They also denied the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, which the apostles proclaimed in Jesus. They thus saw the apostles as both agitators and heretics, both disturbers of the peace and enemies of the truth. In consequence, they were greatly disturbed. Uh, The RSV says they were annoyed or exasperated by what the apostles were teaching the people, for this was unauthorized preaching by unprofessional preachers. So just like we have the Capitol Police in Washington, the temple guard was responsible for the maintenance of law and order in and around the temple. In this case, the captain of the police force, who held a priestly rank second only to the high priest, arrested Peter and John. It was late in the day, so they were put in jail and held overnight. Luke, however, makes an important point by letting us know this. Yes, Peter and John are in jail, but the word of God is not. Even though the preacher has been temporarily silenced, the word continued to bear its fruit. And he says, almost parenthetically, however, yes, Peter and John were arrested. Yes, they're spending the night in jail. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men became about 5,000. So the total number of men, and this is a gender-specific word, male, had now reached 5,000. So when we, and this was a common way of counting, we see this in the feeding of the 5,000, that, oh yes, and the women and the children So now we're talking about 20 to 25,000 people in a city of about 600,000 who've now professed faith in Christ. Remember we had 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Now the number of men has grown to 5,000. You add the women and the children. 20 to 25,000 people suddenly. This was a rapidly spreading fire and a rapidly changing and dangerous situation. Roy, the need of every hour is for wise and courageous men who can speak the truth without compromise. Yes, they should have compassion and love and grace. Those are necessary, but no fiddling with the truth. Charles Spurgeon commented on the con- that constant temptation He said, I make no personal reference, but I see the spirit of compromise concerning holiness and sin, truth and error, far too prevalent. The spirit of compromise comes not of the spirit of God, but of the spirit of the world. It is always wisest and best to exhibit clear, 
decision upon fundamental points, we must draw the line distinctly and then stand to it firmly. Do not alter your course because of winds and currents. Do not try to make things pleasant all around. Do not be like the fellow in one of the American towns who saw a traveler leaning against the lamppost, weary and worn out from his journey. The traveler inquired of him how far it was to such a place and was told that it was ten miles. The weary traveler sighed and said, I shall never hold out. I shall faint on the road. Ah, said the sympathizing informant, I, don't, I, I, I did not know you were quite so far gone. I will knock off three miles and make it seven for you. Of course, this operation in words did not alter the fact, nor really reduce the ten to seven. Yet this is the method of some weakly amiable souls. They tone down the truth, forgetting that their tone does not affect the fact. Roy, we're engaged in warfare. And as a leader of the Church of Jesus Christ, you have been called to take a firm and bold stand, not only against worldly powers, but also against satanic powers that oppose Jesus Christ. And one of the favorite tools of the devil in tempting men is that he tempts them to crave and uh, to cave and bend and twist and modify the truth. If you would simply make the message more general and less demanding, something we can all live with. Again, Spurgeon observes, an evil is in the professed camp of the Lord so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, it has developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of her mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view of, with a view of winning them. From speaking out as the Puritans did, the church has gradually toned down her testimony, then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Then she tolerated them in her borders, and now she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. But note that Peter's courageous witness and preaching were threatening to the kingdoms of darkness then, and that same kind of witness and preaching continues to be a threat. Christian leaders have certainly faced opposition and persecution through the ages, and they continue to do so today. The battle is no less fierce today than it was on that day on Solomon's porch 2,000 years ago. Therefore, faithful men should not enter this work lightly. It appears that our own culture has now rounded the bend in its abandonment of Christ. The Sadducees were greatly disturbed. They were worked up. And we too live in a world that is disturbed and worked up for the same reason. They will not have a Jesus who rose from the dead. Because a resurrected Jesus causes real trouble, and that makes you a troublemaker if you proclaim that truth. 
In 2010, Cardinal Francis George of the Archdiocese of Chicago, referring to what the complete secularization of our society could bring, said that, quote, he expected to die in bed, my successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. He went on to say, quote, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. Roy, we hope that this church grows in the years to come. The church was growing even as Peter and John were arrested. But your work as an elder will be to hold fast the truth whether we grow or whether we shrink in size. When people like it and when they don't like it, the Apostle Paul addressed this issue with young Pastor Timothy even as the Apostle was preparing to leave this world for glory. His parting words to the next generation of pastors and elders we find in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, no matter what the cultural ups and downs are, whether they like it or they don't like it, whether it's popular or unpopular, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Our woke world is sound asleep. Their current critical theories are built out of nothing and their foundation is on thin air. They don't know who they are or where they're going. Not a clue. Professing to be wise, they are destined to be fools, but they are certain of one thing. Jesus is not God, and he did not rise from the dead. Follow the science. The first commitment Paul calls upon Timothy to make is to take the things he heard from Paul and others, and I presume that includes Peter, and then to transmit them intact to other faithful men. The context of this is clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the message. That is the mission of the church, not simply in its initial call to repentance and faith, but in its full-orbed application to all of life. How important is this? Is it that the content of the gospel be preserved accurately? Well, close isn't good enough. Well, could we make it a little more seeker-friendly? Can you imagine Jesus saying something like that to his apostles? Can you even fathom that? Paul has already charged Timothy to re retain the standard of sound words. Now, as Paul prepares to leave this world, his concern turns to the fact that the gospel baton needs to be passed on to the next generation with an eye to the future. Overseers are especially charged with guarding the deposit of sound words. 
They are ministers or servants of the word. Roy, to fulfill your ministry will be difficult. It will be more difficult than you can imagine now. There will be times when you want to quit, times of fatigue, times of self-doubt, and I know that from personal experience. Paul described the situation in Galatia. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Peter started in Acts by setting an example of bold, uncompromising declaration of the central truth of the Christian faith. By chapter 7 of Acts, we're going to see Stephen, a deacon, follow in Peter's courageous footsteps and pay with his life. Back to our text in Acts 4, after Peter and John spent the night in jail, the next day the rulers, that is the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 71 members presided over by the high priest, met to consider the accusations against them. Ananias, who was a deposed high priest, Uh, but still respected by the Jews, was there along with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Just a couple of months earlier, both men had figured prominently in the trial and condemnation of Jesus. So Peter and John now are brought in before this semicircle of judges. This was a rapidly changing political situation. Anything could happen. Surely, thought of the crucifixion must have been very pressing before their mind's eye. This is the same timid and cowardly Peter who, when confronted by the statements of a young girl just a couple of months ago, denied even knowing Jesus. He's now ready to die for Jesus. The court began their interrogation with a straight question to Peter and John. By what power or what name did you do this? That is, how did you make this crippled man whole? How did you take this man lame from birth who's now walking and leaping and praising God? How did you do that? We're reminded of the Jewish leaders who had asked Jesus by what authority he had cleansed the temple. In response, Peter and John unabashedly bore witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus had previously warned them concerning what was coming their way in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 18. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. 
For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. For by your patience possess your souls. Roy, none of us knows what lies ahead or what cost might be demanded for those who speak up and who speak out for Christ. But when the time comes, I charge you to be resolved to stand firm and steadfast. Whether it's one person or a crowd. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, You got that picture now? Ananias, Caiaphas, all that's happened in the last couple of months. Is he he trembling? Is he shaking? Is he worried? Is he making excuses? Is he trying to soft sell what happened? Here's what he says. Rulers of the people of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you. Here's the answer to their question. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What possible objection could there be that they healed a man who was crippled since birth? Wouldn't everybody be happy about that? Well, no good deed goes unpunished. So Peter, for the third time, lays the blame at the feet of the Sanhedrin. This isn't a basic a basis for anti-Semitic prejudice. Peter himself was a Jew. He was pointing out that the very man you rejected and crucified, God accepted and raised him from the dead. This Jesus, the one who is from Nazareth, he healed the lame man. You remember what Nathaniel said to Philip when Philip had told him about Jesus? He says, and Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was low class. Philip said to him, come see. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. This is the third time Peter has used this graphic description. You crucified him, but God raised him. For Jesus is the stone of Psalm 118, which we read earlier, which the builders rejected, but God has promoted him to be the chief cornerstone, a text which Jesus himself had quoted. In verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now we get to the heart of the problem and the challenge for all of us. This statement speaks to the exclusivity of Christ's claims and the offense of the gospel. We hearken back to what we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. God is a jealous God. No other gods before me. 
Jesus isn't sharing the stage here. Even our so-called pluralist culture finds the exclusive claims of Jesus to be offensive. Yes, Jesus can have a place at the table so long as he remains quiet and doesn't ask too many questions. At least that's what used to be the case. But since Jesus keeps on insisting that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him, then he must leave the table altogether. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he is the only begotten Son of God, then what Peter says next is not only the truth, it is the gospel. It is the profoundly good news. No other name. Notice the ease with which Peter moves from healing to salvation and from the particular to the general. He sees one man's physical cure as a picture of the salvation which is offered to all in Christ. His two negatives. There's no salvation without this, and there's no other name to get it. The death and resurrection, his death and resurrection, his exaltation and authority constitute him the one and the only Savior since nobody else possesses his qualifications. Roy, today you are being given a legacy a privilege, and a duty. As an elder and overseer of Christ's church, you serve the Lord first. It's to Him that you will give an account. And I'll close the sermon today with a reading from 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-9. through 9. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart you to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faithful men and women you have raised up from the beginning to proclaim the exclusive truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that as we sit here 2,000 years after Peter and John spoke, we are here as your peculiar people set apart for good works. Every church in every place and in every time owes a debt of love and gratitude to those who have remained faithful to the truth. There seem to be many who are prepared to compromise the gospel to be found acceptable to the world. Help this church and help this man whom we are about to ordain 
to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.